Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 311, and I had a conversation with Dedrick Wormack. He's a social worker, coach, behaviorist, public speaker, and author of the book Unrest in an Eagle's Nest, which he wrote under the pen name Maximus Wormack. He grew up in Chicago, and we had a big conversation around what that was like, about what Chicago is like now, and then uh, about Black history, especially as it relates to Chicago. And we talked about economics and his work uh, for social justice. Really interesting conversation. And he knows a lot about Black history. And so I asked if he would come back on another episode and discuss some other topics. So he's going to be a guest a couple times. Uh, so I'm excited about that. And this is the first of two. The second one will come out in a couple weeks. Definitely keep your ears open for that. All right. Uh, usual stuff. Hey Human can be found on social media. Hey Human podcast on Instagram and Facebook. My personal social media, Susan Ruthism, is under Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want to email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. I try to answer everything. Please send me a hello. Or maybe you know somebody you think should be on the show. Let me know that too. If you've written to me and I've responded and you've responded and I have not responded to that, I had some sort of weird mail glitch. So please email me again and I apologize for the delay. Uh, I lost a whole bunch of emails. I have no idea why. And now... In a fit of rage, my computer is sending a ton of stuff to spam. I don't understand computers at all. They hate me. So anyway, please, if you haven't heard back from me, send it again and uh, I will respond. I promise. I think things are getting fixed, hopefully. Um, Anyway, so that's that. Uh, If you want to check out old episodes of Hey Human Podcast and you are listening to the show on the iTunes app, apparently they only hold 300 at a time. So definitely go to the official website and you'll find all the episodes there along with all sorts of stuff on heyhumanpodcast.com. You will find a links page. Every episode gets its own pile of links so that you can go straight to that and get tons of information about my guest uh, and what we may have talked about and links to their social media, things like that. You will find a storefront if you want Hey Human merchandise. It's a great way to support the show and keep it ad-free. There's t-shirts and tote bags and all sorts of fun things. Check that out. You'll also find a contribute button if you would like to contribute to Hey Human Podcast, help keep her alive, afloat, and ad-free. Please do so there. It's a really great way to support Another great way to support, rate, review, subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Share it. Let people know about it. If you hear a particular episode and you think, wow, that's really great, pass it around. Uh, Let other people know. It helps grow the show. Uh, If you would like to check out my YouTube channel, that is at Official Susan Ruth. Definitely go there and poke around. also, if you are into music, you can find my music on iTunes and Spotify and everything else under Susan Ruth. The last record I put out was All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. And if you go to SusanRuth.com, you'll find more information about me personally, the stuff I do outside of the podcast, music, art, uh, interviews that people have done with me where I'm the, the guest. And you can also sign up on the mailing list there. Uh, That's about it. Oh, did you hear my stomach growling? That means it's dinner time. Apologies for that. Um, Thank you for listening. And uh, I hope you are taking care of each other and be well and be kind and good luck out there. And thanks especially for listening. I really appreciate it. And y'all help keep this thing afloat with your ears and your word of mouth. And I'm grateful. Okay, here we go. Dedrick Warmack, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, Tony Green, who I adore, sent me a Facebook message and said, oh, you really got to have him on the show. And I 
absolutely. He has sent me such wonderful people. So it was a no brainer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I actually just met him when I went to speak at his class. So he's the professor of um, the, my partner. And so uh, she kind of just connected it. And, you know, when she, he was like, okay, I'm going to have you in my class. And I'm kind of used to people saying they're going to do things, but not doing them. And so I was like, all right, sure. But when I got in front of this class, uh, it, it was mesmerizing for me. And he immediately followed up and was like, is it okay if I give her your number? I'm like, absolutely. So yeah, he's a great guy to know. Oh my God. I love him. Brilliant yeah. mind. His students are brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah and that was most impressive was his students. Um, I told him I, there's one girl in particular and I told her we need to see her uh, in front of the country at some point. And I would love to be able to hire her to work for my agency at some point. That's great. I think it can get overwhelming to feel like we are heading in a you know trash can over a cliff in terms of this country. And then you see these minds and then these wonderful humans that are shaping these minds. And you think, okay. Maybe there's a chance. Maybe we got something here. <laughs> well, you know, so if you think about it, imagine our country 100 years ago. Imagine our country 200 years ago. We would prefer today versus yesterday in our country. And I think with the media and the way entertainment is programming us, is causing this everlasting despair that we have a hard time getting around. And, you know, most of the youth, they'll show the violence or suicide rates or mental health issues, but they don't show you the kids having fun. They don't right. show the kids out there doing great. The kids, you know, connecting with their neighbors. They don't show you the children that are doing well and, I, that's the one thing I want to change about our society is the perspective we have of each other. Mm. And, you know, whenever someone's saying, oh, our country's going in a hole, I'm like, would you rather 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 25 years ago, or today? And today, right. all of them. So, you I, know. And I, I agree with you. I do. I think that, and I talk about this a lot on the show, that it's just the people that, want to do harm to humanity are very loud, but that there is this great force of beauty and love and progression and understanding and all the good stuff, empathy, right. science, right. Know, every, all the good stuff in the world, uh, and even spirituality, even a depth of soul that exists all around us that you're right, doesn't get amplified. Right. And, and that, that's all we need to do. And it, you know, I've always been, I've always believed and been taught that half of us are trying to build it up. The other half are trying to tear it down. And so, you know, as long as we continue to focus on the builders, even with this form that you have and uh, the connection that we're making right now, um, I'm a true believer in God. I'm not religious, but, uh, I have researched a, a lot of theology since an early, early age, since my adolescent years. And I, I'm sure the devil is at work in this world. And the harder he works, the more despair we get as a society. But it's only actually because that's the amount of good that's overwhelming the evil. Mm. I think of the devil or the, the personification of the devil as our capacity for self-destruction, self-loathing, self-sabotage. And well, if we look at the devil, for example, as if Lucifer, the light bringer, shining the light on things, it's, it's almost like this being is shining the light on all this, bringing light to the shadow. We're being more aware of our shadow side. If that makes sense. Well, if you're looking at your shadow, then you don't see what's before you. Mm. And or if you're so caught up in your shadow, you know, this. Yeah. 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 I mean, how often 
do we really stop to look at our shadow? And never. <laughs> if, if we were to be looking at our shadow, that would mean that the light is behind us and we've turned away from it. And, you know, so in my belief, I, I totally reject a lot of uh, the, the canons that religion has given us. And I do truly believe in earth being here. And there is no place to go worse than this anywhere within our universe that's fit for human beings. And for those of us who can maintain a measure of faith and optimism and cast love while in this hell, then we're doing God a favor. And I think Satan, and I don't say Satan, but evil, because I don't believe in just Lucifer. I believe in a legion of demons and they whisper in your ear. And it doesn't have to be something catastrophic or intense. It could just be a simple notion to think only of yourself versus others. And at that moment, you never know how you can be perpetuating evil. It might be something as simple as, oh, how do I look today while I'm at work? And I stop to look at myself in the mirror and I shuffle some paperwork that someone desperately needs to be processed. And I miss this. And now the butterfly effect is costing someone their homes and everything that their faith is relying on. And so that's how I like to think of evil. It, it doesn't have to be hitting or harming or cursing. It could just be a slight, a slight that one person didn't mean that could have an everlasting effect on things. Hmm. An absence of love, an absence of right. love. Right, because if you're thinking about yourself, then you're not thinking about others. And, you know, I think that's the, the opposite of what God will want us to do. So, mm -hmm. Did you grow up in a religious family? I did. So my, grand, my paternal grandfather was a 33rd degree Mason. He had a church. Um, he didn't come from an enslaved background. Um, he was born a free man. His father had been a free man. And so he had a church in my neighborhood that was one block away from the hospital I was born in and my elementary school. And my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who mostly raised me, is a very religious person. Like, I don't, I've heard her say one curse word in 48 years or 46, 46 years. And I've never seen her have a drink, um, smoke anything, or do any of those. And so, yeah, so I, I was always intrigued by, by God and the idea of where we all come from. Did she, because she was a, well, let's put quotes around it, godly woman, she practiced what she preached and, and learned. Did that make you want to be more like her or make you kind of go the other way? You know how sometimes kids in that environment will go the opposite direction? So she was the only person. I was ever worried about disappointing. And um, I didn't necessarily follow her, but she, just being around her, um, she had me in church every every weekend. Um, I was, you know, privy to the minister's meetings where, you know, all of these pastors and ministers are arguing religion in our living room and all of these things. Um, and I think I just always wanted to be, I, I just had to always feel like I was being a good person. And my maternal, my paternal god grandfather, supposedly I'm identical to him. Um, there's been times where elderly people would see me in Chicago and stop and start squeezing my face and crying and I'm standing there and my, my friends are like, what the fuck are they doing? And I'm like, chill out. I already know what this is. They think I'm a reincarnation of my grandfather. And so uh, 
I've just always felt like I had the right thing was the only thing to do. Mm. Mm-hmm. You say that your grandparents raised you up, but were your parents working or just so kind of- My mother had me at 16 years old. Um, the very first time she had sex, she became impregnated with me. Um, she finished high school while I stayed home with my grandmother. She went to a few years of college. She was trying to study law. And so I was just born and raised um, with my grandmother. And um, like I didn't live with my mother until I was five years old. Oh, wow. After my grandmother had deemed her uh, mature enough to take me out on her own. I could and understand so, that philosophy. So my grandmother's always been my ace and my rock. So yeah. yeah. And for your mom, can you imagine you, you finally have sex for the first time and you get pregnant the first time? Oh, oh my the, gosh. The, the, that story is probably the story I've heard the most out of my entire life. <laughs> and it, in, it entrenches several different families into my story. Um, and yeah, it, so that was, so the night my mother came home after prom, my father was the preacher's son. My mother was the evangelist's daughter. And my great-grandparents were also ministers. My stepfather was the son of a minister. My mother and my stepfather had been dating from like 13, 14, 15, 16. My mother wasn't giving it up. Um, so she was the youngest of nine. So my father went and snuck out, uh, had sex with somebody else. They became pregnant. Um, then she broke up with my stepfather. And, you know, I don't know if it was out of spite or what, but my dad was this suave, handsome, piano playing, uh, crooner, quarterback who, you know, was... The, he was a ladies' man in the neighborhood. And so my mother went out with him on her prom. He used Al Green in the joint, and she gave it up and got pregnant with me. The next morning when she came home, Mr. Curry, who lived next door to us, Mr. Curry, was he's an old Creole man. And he told her, as soon as, so my auntie, my mother went to her older sister's house after prom. She brought my mother home the next morning. My mother had showered and dressed and she got out of the car and Mr. Curry would sit on the sidewalk in Chicago every morning in his lawn chair. And when she got out of the car, he called her over to him and told her she lost her shine and that she was pregnant with a boy and he heaped a whole bunch of stuff on me before I was even a thought, really. And so uh, his premonitions have come correct. Wow. Uh, I want to meet that guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, you know, I wish he was still alive. Uh, his family, they were always like my relatives. Uh, and so, yeah, they're, they're a great family. And we're, we're really still well connected. Did you grow up with any kind of contact with your father? Yeah. So my father, like I said, my grandfather's church was a block away from my school, like two and a half blocks from my house. Um, my, my paternal family had several numerous houses in our community. And growing up in Chicago, there wasn't one single block in my entire community that I didn't have a family household on. And so, yeah, I grew up around two of the biggest families on the South side. And I take no hesitation in saying I was the most pampered child overall in the entire city. That's good though. Yeah. Yeah. It made all of the difference in the world. I've lived all over the place. I've been so many places and I got it. Chicago is one of my favorite cities. Do you live there? I don't. I live in California, but I just, the food, the architecture, the people, so much about it. 
if I could be you for that experience, I would love Chicago. But I'm the, I'm at the other end of the spectrum, and it's I loved I loved growing up there, mm. but I saw the changes that were coming, and once I became aware, I no longer could like. To me, Chicago is the pit of hell. Wow, isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah, and you know, you know, all of the prophecies mention Chicago. Um, I don't. I don't want to hear though. Yeah, so you know, Chicago. A lot of people don't realize what Chicago is, and Chicago's the first sin city over fate of Las Vegas. Oh yeah, we're talking eighteen hundred sin city when. Uh, missionaries from California, um, down South and the Yankees from back East would go to Chicago just to practice murder and torture. Oh my goodness. Yes. And so who would you say, who, who do you know as the most, um, prolific serial killer in the world? H.H. Holmes, Chicago, devil in the white city. Two blocks away from where I was born. He was he he murdered on 63rd and Wallace. I lived on I was born on 61st Street and moved to 60th Street. So literally, I could almost throw a rock from where I was born. Did you ever have any experiences growing up where you sensed? Because I think when people die tragically, they leave an even bigger imprint than just your average. Oh, this place feels like it's got a little something different here. But in tragedy and horror, it leads to deeper. Yeah. That that's all of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And when winter comes and you hear the wind howling, there's no way you don't believe that that's supernatural. Mm-hmm. When you hear the wind howling, okay. And I've been in New York, Canada, Wisconsin, everywhere else. No place is cold like Chicago. Oh, it's brutal. And they'll say it's because it's the lake, but the lake doesn't affect the atmosphere like the ocean does. And so why aren't the lakes just as cold up in Wisconsin or Indiana or any of those places? And so in Chicago, we've always known we were different than any other place in this world. And so I don't, I don't know how, if you made it through my book, but that's what the book details. I have to be, I've only just learned of you a day ago. So I didn't get a chance to get the book. book I read very quickly, but not that quickly. (laughs) I'm a great behaviorist and social worker, but I don't have the academic background where I'm going to write like Shakespeare or some Oxford student. And that was one of the first things that I put in my book, like, you know, but Chicago is the closest thing to hell that I can imagine besides Mexico right now. Let's call your book by its title, Unrest in the Eagle's Nest. Is the Eagle's Nest a reference to a specific place in Chicago or is that an overarching title of the city? so it encompass- So I went to Inglewood High School, and the community I'm from is Inglewood, and our mascot was the Eagles. And I've always been infatuated with Eagles um, because of their, their reclusiveness and the mystery that remains because they aren't common and in the midst of everything else. And I realized from my reading that's kind of what I needed to be as a human being. Uh, I need to be effective and connected to the people, but no one can immerse themselves into society and still affect that society because of evil versus good and all of those things. Um, Let me see if I'm understanding. So you mean that in order to to be a beacon and to make a change and to be the difference, you almost have to step outside of the fishbowl and, and look in. So well, you, you, you kind of have to be. So in an ocean, 
in order for you to rule an ocean, you have to be almost separated from every other species of fish. Where you come through, you pass through, you maintain your aura and your appeal, and then you disappear. And it, it goes back to the same thing. When Jesus returned home to where he was from, he was killed. Um, and I know that if I, I've always known that going back to Chicago is a very dangerous thing for me, not because of any personal vendettas or anything like, cause I don't have those, but just being a good person in Chicago is dangerous mm. because if you witness something and you're one of those people that are compelled to react or respond, it's easy for you to be drawn into a deadly situation. I understand that. Yeah. How old are you? 48. When did you leave Chicago? I first left when I was 17. Oh. I came to California in August. And I ended up having a heart attack oh. in October and then January. And so I returned home a year after I first came here. Uh, young for a heart attack. Yeah. Woof. It was the basketball, you know, thing on the basketball court. So, yeah. Wow. Um, I'm, you're fine now? Yeah. Well, I, I have a defibrillator. I've probably had like, I've had like 17 cardiac arrests in my life. Oh, my goodness. You're an overachiever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Did you grow really fast or something? What caused that? Is it just a genetic mishap? So, so when it happened to me, um, 91, no one really knew anything about it. Um, if you recall who Reggie Lewis is from the Boston Celtics, uh, he had it along with me. And the Boston Celtics at that time hired the top 12 cardiologists in the world to create a panel. That panel told Reggie there was nothing wrong with him. And he would more than likely never have a heart attack again. Stanford was my doctor's. Two of them were on that panel. And they were the only two with the wherewithal to say, we don't know. And so that's the, that was the reason I stayed alive because Stanford was smart enough to say, we don't know. So this is the best case for you to take this machine that if it does happen again, it could save your life. Wow. And I tried to talk Reggie into taking the machine, but those doctors on their end had convinced him that he didn't need it. Mm -hmm. and so here we are. 30 years later, while there have been some breakthroughs, not many people still know what causes it. All of the intense violence that I underwent in Chicago compounded to create this reaction that my body naturally developed because it was so consistent and maybe when I was playing basketball, because I was a very intense player. Um, and so my body probably confused that with the fight or flight and, you know, but I would have to really look into that to see. Mm. I've had several friends, uh, die of the same thing. Interesting. Reflecting on the violence of uh, your childhood, the things that went on around you, how did you navigate that, especially the juxtaposition of church? And trying to be part of that world and then having this violence happening all around you and gangs. To me, it didn't have to be juxtaposed because we preach Christianity as a submission. But the, the, the first person to start the bloodline was David. David was a warrior. And 
I've always seen things as good and evil. And, you know, having this out, this outlook and, you know, aspect of being good and evil, I've always believed that um, there is no separation. And so in Chicago, our gangs are actually based on religion. Okay. So the disciples, which I am, is under the star of David, which is a six-point star. We're Christians. The other gangs are under the five-point crescent star. I mean, the five-point star and the crescent moon. They're Muslims. And so originally, our, our gangs were created just like any other church or religious organization or, or, or any organization, which is to better the community or whether it's business, finance, sports or whatever. And it's my understanding that the Crips and the Bloods actually originated as a relatively a neighborhood watch to protect their, their own. Right. right. Um, I know LA was, you know, they're considered another central hub for early black communities. But um, in Chicago, we knew about all of the things that impacted us as black people. And so as I told Mr. Green's class, whereas everyone else was like, oh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Harriet Tubman. No, in Chicago, we was talking about David Barksdale, uh, Fred Hampton, Mark Clark, uh, Huey and Bobby and H. Rap Brown and Eldridge Cleaver and Mega Evers and because the connection to all of them was rooted out of Chicago, okay? And so I know you probably heard everybody has family in Chicago, right? And so all of those people had relatives there that were really keen on paying attention. Fred, like all the way back to Emmett Till, who Fred Hampton was, you know, his mother used to babysit Emmett Till. And Fred Hampton knew my uncles and, you know, my family. And so we weren't caught up in the average uh, Black history. We knew that there was a war. We knew the things that was happening. Chicago, I think it still might be the most racially segregated city in the world. And so we had to have this perspective on our lives and our actions. And so that was what brought about the discipline that we had as an organization before. And the same things that ruined the Black Panthers are the same things that ruined the street gangs. They buy a sellout. They get somebody to snitch, um, disseminate you know, misinformation, all of these things. And so there was no difference between me being a godly man and having a battle with the things that were in our streets. You growing up were a part of the six-pointed gang. So, yeah. My, well, my family were naturally disciples. And then when they split into several different factions, um, my uncle was one of the major leaders. My uncle was actually one of the ones killed in 1986, along with other top leaders in, the, in Chicago to usher, usher in the open air drug market. Mm. And when they killed my uncle, um, he was shot in the back of the head in his Cadillac. They parked his Cadillac at the gas station on 59th and Halstead, which Halstead is the center of Chicago. Um, they parked it on 59th and Halstead at the Shell station right under the uh, the big sign for the gas station with the blood and brains still all over it so that the whole community could know that he really was dead. And so had they not done that, um, along with killing Fluky Stokes, there would have never been an open-air drug market in Chicago. Can you speak a little bit to when you say they, just for the listeners to understand who you're referring to? So they are the ones that's tearing down everything. Um, they 
I'm pretty sure, you know, FBI, CIA, whoever you want to call, I don't need to point fingers or, you know, some acronym because all of these things we know are given. We know that they were, you know, using Cointelpro and um, the snitches in the hood and all of this stuff. But um, the fact that these were the most powerful men who kept our city under control to both be assassinated. So Fluky Stokes was in a limo. His driver stopped the limo, jumped out. His car had been rigged so he couldn't get out and there was a bomb in the car. Black people in there, we don't use bombs. We don't know how to make bombs in the community like that. And so we knew that those things, even in putting my uncle's car, which is, you know, supposed to be a crime scene and you park it on a street corner in, in the most busy, you know, neighborhood on the South side, you know, so we all knew what was happening and what was coming after that. And so it could be one or two police. And so let, let me clarify, I don't group anyone. There's bad police, there's great police. There's bad white people, there's great white people. Bad black people, great black people. And so I there is no group that gets stuck in a corner with me on any issue. Um, and so all we know is that it had to be a setup. It ran very deep. And after my uncle was killed, trust in our community was pretty much done for. And I think it's important to note that when, especially people listening to this that may not be aware of a very large swath of time in American history where very powerful people who were supposedly on the right side of the law did flood the streets with narcotics and violence and guns provided all those things in order to destroy from within. I mean, that's documented history. In eighth grade, I went to William G. Bill School on 61st and Peoria. 60th in Peoria. And so one day a white girl showed up to our school and we was like, oh. like <laughs> she lost? Like, and they were like, no, she's transferred in. And we we're like, what the hell? Her name was Iris Sabolsky. I'll never forget that. Her first day of school, her father was some military guy, some mm -hmm. officer in the military. They show up to our school. He puts her in our school and the entire community is looking at this guy like, do you know where you are? Like, do you know what you're doing? You're putting your daughter into Bill's school where future gang leaders, I'm talking about kings, not a community leader, not a, I'm talking about future kings are situated in our school. We are the head of everything in the streets of Chicago. And you brought your daughter to our school and she comes in and she was not some timid white girl. We had a football game going outside and she came and got in the game. And so I wasn't a great athlete in eighth grade. I, I was awkward, I was clumsy, but I was well-liked because I was one of the smarter kids and. Like, I, I just had a lot of great friends and stuff. And so someone threw the football. We were playing a game. They threw me the football. And I'm going up to catch it. And here's this white girl going up to catch it in front of me. And I'm like, oh, fuck no. I'm not about to let this white girl <laughs> my neighborhood and steal a football for me in a football game. So she grabbed the ball. I grabbed the ball. And I just yanked it back from her. And it broke two of her fingers. She came down. She looked at her hand. And she cracked them back without crying. And all of us were standing there like, oh, shit. Like, not only have we never seen a girl do this, let alone a white girl. And her father and her stayed in our neighborhood. That 
was the year my uncle had just been killed, right? No one realizes the impact of that because an army, an officer in the army or military, I don't know what he was, was able to move into Inglewood, have his daughter attend Bill School and have a decent time. The open air drug market was not for the drugs. It was not for the violence. It was to ruin the wealth that black Americans had accumulated. And my family had over 20 pieces of property in our community. My uncle had one of the biggest apartment buildings. A new development was put in. My family bought half of that development. And that cost us billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. So I go back to Iris Sabolsky because her dad and her moving there and having a decent time also threatened the rest of the real estate in Chicago. If white families now believed we can move into Inglewood and our daughter, we don't have to worry about her getting raped like they say. We don't have to worry about her getting robbed like they say, because these things weren't happening before 1987. And so all of a sudden now here comes this open air drug market that's diminishing the real estate value and making it so this is this whole quarter of the city of Chicago, one of the largest cities in our country, we've now diminished the ability to move into 30% for wealthy America, wealthy people in Chicago. And it's not the first time that that's happened. I mean, America right. has a history of going into black communities that are doing extraordinarily well and thriving and are wealthy and just hobbling them at the knees, whether by fire or flood or bomb. Well, it, it, it's, it's not only in America, it's, it's a war tactic. It's in the art of war. Okay, and so the fact that's the thing is so in Chicago, this is how we have to think. We can't limit it to oh, the police in our community are crooked or our governor or mayor or even the president. It's a worldwide thing of the rich trying to control the wealth that they have and hoard it for themselves. Of course. And driving down other property values, making sure the poor stay as poor as possible. It's also much easier to control poor people and uh, uneducated people and hungry people and people with addictions and all that stuff. I mean, it's it's not like psyops. It's pretty obvious. And the thing that is really unfortunate, and this is true anytime you destroy an economic system, is that then there become there's infighting. And so then you have, they just start fighting amongst themselves and they can just step back. And I mean, like they with a capital T, any system, anybody, you step back and it's like the, the snake that eats itself. Well, it, it's, that it's, it's a business. Controlling the poor is, is a profitable. Yeah, and it's big business, yes. Right, and so they are not going to give up those profits and right. so that and because being a sociology student you could trace everything back to the 60s at the beginning of the 60s with the black panthers being created um our government looking different with the kennedys um the civil rights movement those people who had gone to World War One had started to trickle in some wealth and education. Then World War II and the Korean War. And so this is what helped establish Black families with those men who went off to the war. And they were able to come back, use GI bills or whatever to get education. And so in the 60s, with the riots, we know that our government was key in the assassination of 
everyone. Martin and Luther I, King Jr., uh, Fred Hampton, Malcolm right. X, right. And so, Kennedy, the Kennedys. <laughs> right. And so yeah. with all these things, then you have the revision of our social services system. No man could be in a house if you're getting welfare, Section 8, WIC, any of those things. So then comes the 70s with Carter. They pacified us with him. Then, you know, well, Nixon after Kennedy or whatever. And so by the 80s, when Reagan came in, we got the, we got the greatest actor to play our president. So I knew it was, I mean, I'm listening to my grandfather, and I'm not going to say I had the sense to know it, but listening to those great wise men that I grew up around, they was like, we got the, they got, you know, the new John Wayne to play this role as president. He got in, he ruined mental health, and that's when I decided, no, I'd actually already decided that I wanted to be a psychologist, but um, when he ruined, when he ended the meta, the mental health, uh, state-sanctioned mental health, that happened right as the drug epidemic is flowing in. And at this point, heroin came back with Vietnam. Okay, before Vietnam, you may have had somebody in a black community smoking marijuana and drinking. It wasn't, we, we didn't, couldn't afford drugs and nobody really did drugs. So once the crack cocaine epidemic came in, now he's gotten rid of state sanctioned mental health. So these people who were doing the drugs would have gone into a mental health clinic or you know institution rather than prison. And you can trace the whole lineage of our society and the black community back to the 60s and then the idea of for-profit prisons come along and then there you go we have this horrific system of keeping human beings enslaved under the guise of a drug offense yeah, yeah. we live in a society in a society that has been so isolated with themselves and their own issues that there's no regard for any other issues. Okay. And so I don't even know how we are going to reform ourselves. This is the thing that's so maddening is that, you know, we have these conversations, we know that a system is in place that's a Thunderdome where they're just sending people in to fight themselves and we all know it. So why does it keep getting perpetuated? What is so difficult about stepping outside of that? Now, obviously drug addiction is heavy burden to carry alcoholism, a heavy burden to carry poverty, a heavy burden to carry, but we, we all know intellectually what it is and yet still play the game still step into thunderdome and fight our brothers and sisters so so susan this is gonna sound really harsh <laughs> half of our world shouldn't be alive half of our world should have never been born we since the Trans, you know, transition from being hunters and gatherers to sharecropping and feudal lordism. The worst of mankind has become the most reproductive. <laughs> Idiocracy. And that that's 5,000 years ago. Some idiot of a son whose father happens to be lord running around raping and having sex with every woman in his village or in their castle, reproducing, and this continues on. So if you said Kim Kardashian 
is at this Starbucks and Neil deGrasse Tyson is at this other Starbucks. Who do you think the masses are going to flood to see? Of course. And if you think about that fact, right. that, that levels the whole idea of what our society is. Because Kim's not going to teach you or tell you anything that can benefit you later. Yeah, she's pretty to look at and all of this stuff, but you could go listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson for five minutes and increase your IQ. It is a weird, somebody like Kim Kardashian is an interesting juxtaposition to me because she obviously has perpetuated a lot of horrible stereotypes and myths and, uh, and just created an atmosphere around her that is toxic for sure. But at the same time, she's like, oh, let's get these people that aren't guilty out of prisons and let's do this. It's, it's, it's like a moment of self-reference where I wonder if she's like, you know, I've got to get some more on this side of the scale because, you know, when I die and that feather drops. <laughs> so, you, you know what? I don't even believe that part. I, I know what she's been trying to do. If you're riding around with a million dollar ring on. Uh, yeah. I can't believe that you have any real interest in society. I, I agree with you. Absolutely. I really do. It is very hard to see that. I mean, people argue me about Elon Musk, for example. Oh, but he's trying to get us to Mars. I'm like, well, great. Although right now he's trying to buy Twitter and, and I get it. He's so rich. He can do that. That's fine. He's allowed to do whatever he wants with his money. Of course he is. We all are. But at the same time, I can't help but think 46 billion 55 billion whatever it is dollars poured into this country the society the world at large single-handedly you know could change everything it would take approximately 18 to 25 billion dollars to fix homelessness in the entire state of california just one state. Just one. The biggest state in the country. But we're giving that money to other countries. We're giving that money to, to space programs. And I get it through space. It's just the thing. That's the, that's the problem. It's like I get space exploration is important because because of that, we get all these other things. It trickles down. And I understand that. But in America, kids are starving to death. They can't pay their lunch money bills and they shouldn't have to. They're babies and they deserve to eat as much food as humanly possible, you know? So, Susan, when you asked about the violence and the things I saw in Chicago, right? Mm. As a kid, when I, when I fell, not fell, when I was kidnapped into the street life, now I I don't, I don't even know what word to use. I never thought that would even be remotely possible for my life. I was a straight A student. I was supposed to go to the Air Force Academy. I signed that, uh, that claim in seventh grade. I had never, I missed one question on all four years of state testing. Okay, and that was a, a spelling question because I got hungry and got a little dizzy and I just hurried up and wrote the last answer. When I fell into the streets, I realized then all of society was a lie because there was no more promising student, student or child than I in Chicago because I loved everybody. I was friends with everybody. I had the task of knowing how to lift friends up, pull friends back. Literally five contracts with the biggest houses on my block. And I made at least a couple of hundred dollars every week. 
Okay. Every big con- wait, big contracts doing what? Uh, shoveling snow, mowing grass, babysitting, running errands. Okay. Uh, all of these things. I was the kid known as you always see me going back and forth to the store running errands. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so there was no kid more loved and accepted than me. When I fell into the streets, I expected there to be a citywide meeting, not just to save me, but everyone else. All of these kids that were in these situations, it didn't happen. For a kid, when I was 14 years old, and I wanted to do nothing more than eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with a cold glass of milk and watch the Flintstones. And here I am stuck on a street corner being shot at on a regular basis. The police know who's shooting at me. They know they're trying to kill me. But if you find me with a gun, then you're going to arrest me. Even if the police drove to the gang and say, we know for a fact you're at war with this gang. So any person in this gang gets killed, we're arresting everyone in your gang. That will stop. Even if you posted one police officer every three blocks in any crime-ridden community, it would stop. Okay? And so to know that there was nothing anyone was going to do when I know cold-blooded killers that are looking at my mother and telling her to her face, we're going to kill your 14-year-old son when we see him. And there's nothing anyone could do. So I knew then what this world really was. And I've seen it time and time and time again. And that's what I've been fighting against since taking up social work, uh, mental health, and all of these things. So, so even when we're talking about Elon Musk and all of these people, we're talking about a space race. And if you, if they put together Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, uh, the guy from Facebook, if all of them simply said, we'll give 2% of our wealth, we could fix homelessness in California, and who knows how many geniuses are sleeping in the back of their mother's car or sleeping in the tent. So all of the things that we're hoping to be able to discover or, or research, the answer is probably sitting out here in despair somewhere. I got to wonder too, if, if not even starting with homelessness was starting with mental health, because I think one begets another in, in a big way that the cycle goes that direction and not the other direction. Maslow's hierarchy of needs should be taught in the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth grade. But yet no one mentions it for all of these black kids who are witnessing their friends being murdered, who are seeing people murdered on television because of their color or the color of their skin, which a young black child has to imagine that happening to them. That in itself is trauma. Absolutely. We We know from all of these things what's really going on. But we'll sit and try to, oh, let's do some research to figure out how to help the black. You don't need research because we all know what we would do for ourselves if we were in that situation. You know, so the the answer is clear. It just keeps being distorted to continue the practice of profiting off of their pain. Where do you go from there? (laughs) What do you do? Me? Mm. I try to open the eyes of the kids to realize you can't look at life. You can only look at yourself. If you look at life, 
you'll lose all hope. If you look at yourself, you'll notice your maturity. You'll notice your physical capacity increasing, your emotional capacity increasing, your intelligence increasing. I, I say it's like a workout. Through every intense thing I've ever gone through, and believe me, the heart attack is not even a slice of the pie. Through all of those things, I measured myself almost like I'm competing in a sport. I have to beat this. I have to fight this. And I have to keep my head about me. And when I do, I chalk it up as a victory because I maintained my faith. I maintained my hope, my optimism, and my perspective. But for those without that capacity, I have to bring, bring all of these things into the light. I have to show everyone what we're dealing with. I, I know there's a lot of stuff that you do. And, and when I talked to Tony, he said, He's like, oh man, he knows all this stuff about the race riots in 1919. He knows about the Black Panther stuff and all that. That might be a great episode just in and of itself. Would you be willing to come back on on another episode and just talk about the history of Chicago and the stuff that went on during that time? Because I know this time we focus more on you and in more of a, in an abstract way about things that were going on, but more about you as a person. Would you be down to do that? Uh, anytime you anytime you want me on your show, you invite me and I'm here. Okay, uh, cool. We're talking about Red Summer 1919. That wasn't just Chicago. Colonnade in Chicago, right? That that was a big, I thought it was across the United States, the yeah, bloody so summer. And then it started in St. Louis or somewhere over there. There's a story about it. I saw it somewhere. What the church that was is still standing. Um, mm-hmm. but that was over the economic advancements. And if you time it, we're talking six years after World War I. We're talking six years with our current economic system. And we're taught this is where racism was stoked. This is where that flame that has us where we are today as a, as a, as a world was stoked because the white people were looking for jobs. Everyone went through the Great Depression. And so when these companies came about, they hire ethnic, ethnic groups because you could pit them against one another. So you hired the whites. The whites come through. They didn't work as hard. They wanted pay raises, all of this stuff. So you get rid of them, bring in the, the blacks or the Latins or the Asians. Or the Irish. Or, yeah. Right. And this had been going on. This was the same thing they did with agriculture in California, uh, with the railroad system. Mm-hmm. And this company's ways of, okay, we're paying these white people, say, 75 cents or a dollar an hour. We know we could play, pay black people 35 cents an hour or right. Asian people 30 cents an hour. And they're going to work feverishly, whereas this white privileged population they're around here learning and they're not producing as fast. So let's pit them against each other. And that's what the 1919 summer, rare summer was about. Yeah. And yeah. So I'd love to dig into that in a full episode if, if you're down. So yeah, yeah, we'll definitely do that. Tell people how they can find you the best way to, to get a hold of you if they want to reach out or learn more about your, the things you're doing. So you can find my book on um, unresting an Eagle's nest on Amazon Kindle. Um, you can find me under Dedrick Warmack uh, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. Um, I'm not so keen in keeping up with those things, but if you were to look to contact me, Facebook would be better. And um, I'm pretty, I'm an open guy, you know, to the world. So if someone comes and they have the right energy, um, and I think we may make a, a powerful dynamic, you know, chemistry to change the world. Then I'm all for that. Awesome. And I'll put links on HeyHumanPodcast.com and make things easier for people to find everything as a, yes. you know, 
So thank you so much, Susan. Thank you. This has been really great. Thank you for listening, everybody. You hey, have a good time, Susan, and thank your audience for even tolerating. Absolutely. Bye bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.